0: Welcome to Inspire Churches Podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at InspireChurches.com. Last week, we kicked off this series called Foundations, Um, and, and really, there's sort of these foundational truths, these foundational set of beliefs in Christianity, but what's interesting is when you go to ask Christians about these foundational beliefs, some can't articulate them or defend them, some don't agree with them, and some don't even know what they are, Um, And so we found that this would be be a very insightful series, and I'm going to do more teaching than preaching, but that don't mean y'all can't get your amens and hallelujahs in whenever you see fit, so go ahead and feel free. Um, Now, if you're here and you're like, ah, bah, who needs doctrine? Just give me Jesus. Well, okay, Uh, tell me about Jesus. And the minute you say anything about Jesus, you're making a doctrinal statement, you're speaking doctrine, right? Or if you say, well, you know, we don't need doctrine, all that really matters is is God just wants us to be good people. Well, that's actually a a statement of doctrine. It's called justification by works. In other words, there is no way of escaping a doctrine-based life. There's no way of escaping this the the reality that you are proclaiming um, and presenting some sort of doctrine to other people all the time. All the time. So doctrine matters because either way you're promoting it. And so the question becomes well, what doctrine are you promoting? And do you even know? Do you even know? Um, and what's interesting is, is as you learned last week, this, this, uh, ministry called Ligonier sent out a survey to thousands of people and, and they asked all these doctrinal questions and, uh, about God and Christ and the Bible and, and the Holy Spirit. And they got all sorts of answers from Christians, non-Christians, people of different religions, backgrounds, whatever. And, and they, and they, and they present this report and they do this every year. So we can kind of see where people are, um, when it comes to their different, Doctrinal beliefs um, in Christianity. And today we're really focusing on one of the foundational doctrines called Sola, Scriptura. Sola. Scripture. And that simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation, sola scriptura means scripture alone, right? That all necessary uh, truth for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in scripture. In other words, the Bible is the highest authority in our life because of everything it affirms and teaches. Because of everything it affirms and teaches, And so we're asking questions. We're asking questions throughout this whole series. We're asking questions. And in fact, in my own home, we we really promote asking questions. We love it when our girls ask questions. And at least I thought I did. But the other day, Eden came up, my youngest one. And she said, Daddy, she goes, why is your tummy the shape that it is? And I said, because. And she said, it's because you like your snacks, huh, Daddy? I said, yes. And she said, daddy, how come you hide your snacks? And I said, I hide them because your mom wants to live a healthy lifestyle and I don't want to tempt her. So I, so I hide them. So that way they're not a temptation for her. And she goes, oh, then you're a hero. I said, yes, I am. (laughs) Yes, I am. We love questions and we're actually going to be asking several questions, right? And, and today we're focusing on questions of the Bible. Because for, for many of you, when you received your first Bible, several of you, you received it when you were a kid or maybe a teacher, I mean a teenager, right? And, and you were kind of told, hey, listen, this is the Bible, it's all true. If the Bible settles, says it, then that settles it, right? right. right? Um, but then as you began to grow up and you began to read some of the stories in the Bible, you began to hear some stuff about the Bible, um, you and you began to question, well, wait a minute, I don't know. And you might not tell anybody this, but in your mind, you might be like, I don't know if I really, I mean, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale, right? I- I'm not sure, you know, did God really part the Red Sea? Did, did a donkey really talk? Um, did, did Jesus actually turn water into wine? And, in fact, you live in a generation that if you were to go up to somebody and and they were to say, well, why do you believe in God? And you were to say, well, because of the Bible to them, that means nothing anymore uh, because to them, this Bible has no authority. But but actually, if you've had those questions, you're not alone. Because if you remember, we actually had Inspire. We took some of the questions from the Ligonier uh, survey and we posed them to Inspire. To you guys. And for those of you who responded, we thank you for that. And I just want to show you some of the results. Look, look at this. We, asked, we, we said this statement. This was a true or false statement. Biblical accounts of the physical body, the physical body resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. This event actually occurred. The, 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 the resurrection actually occurred, right? 7% of you said, not sure. You're not sure. What about this one? Um, The Bible is not literally true. 20 of you agreed with that statement. 20% of you agreed that the Bible is not literally true. How about this? The Bible is 100% true in all that it teaches. About 20 of you who took the, the 20% of you who took the survey um, uh, disagreed with that. Disagreed with it. How about this one? The Bible has the authority to tell us what to do. 19% of you folks that inspire disagreed with that statement. You you disagree. You said, "Nope, I don't think the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do." The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. 21% of you said no. I appreciate that honesty. And for most of you who who maybe fall in that category, you probably haven't even shared that with anybody, but these are some internal questions that you have. Because listen, if you're actually reading your Bible, if you're actually studying it, meditating on it, thinking on it, then to to be honest, when you get to some passages, they should force you to stop and think about it. You shouldn't just kind of read through it and say, yep, that was good. No, it should cause you to stop for a second and think. Let's take uh, Judges 11, when you have Japath who, 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 who went and what he did was he, he made a, a vow to God. He said, God, I'm in the middle of this battle. And if you will let me have victory, then the first thing that comes off of my property, to, 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 you know, I will go ahead and make that a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. The first thing that comes out of, off of my property. And so he wins the battle. He's coming home victorious, right? And he gets to, And he gets to the borders of his property. And what should be the very first thing that comes off of his property? His only child, his daughter, with a tambourine dancing and celebrating his victorious return. He fell to his knees in despair. And he said, no, I can't believe this. But four days later, he kept his promise. He killed her and made her a body a burnt sacrifice. Now, when you hear that story, either you shrug it off because you think it's a fable, it's a legend, or you believe it's true and now you have to wrestle with some stuff. You have to, you have some questions to ask and that's what we're doing. We're asking questions throughout this series, right? A little bit sober there at the beginning. Sorry about that. That's all right. And so what we're going to do is there's actually a phone number that we're going to have on every slide. And as you have questions, go ahead and text those questions in. Um, and, and on Wednesday, we will be answering those questions on our social media pages. And there's some great questions that you can ask. Check it out. You can ask questions like this. Uh, what about the verse in the Bible uh, that contradicts each other? That, that's, a, that's a great, I don't know if we have those slide up, but that's a great question. You, you should go ahead and, and put those in there. How about this? Why are some of the books banned from the Bible? That's a good one. You should, maybe you, someone should text that one in. That's a pretty good one. Find that out. Or, or how about this? There are so many different Bible translations. How do we know that the one we have is accurate? That, that's another good one. Maybe somebody will text that one in. But today we're asking this. How do we know the Bible is reliable? How do we know the Bible is reliable? Let's go to Luke chapter 1, and this is where Dr. Luke, and he's a, he's a scientist, he is a man of science, he is um, a doctor, he's a physician, and he is documenting something. And, and so Luke chapter 1 uh, says this, verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, carefully investigated, see that? Everything from the beginning. It seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This was a rich guy that basically wanted to know, wait a minute, I'm hearing all this stuff about Jesus. I'm reading stuff about Jesus. what's What's really going on? Can you investigate... And so he sends this man of science to uh, to go and investigate what's actually happening. And he and, and so Luke is writing this down, and he says, "So you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught." And then in chapter twenty four, he says this, and this is after Jesus has lived. He's document, he documented Jesus' life. He documented Jesus' death. He documented Jesus' resurrection. And now Jesus has resurrected, and people are seeing the resurrected body of Jesus. And this is what happened, verse 13. It says, now the same day, two of them, two of these people, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Everything that happened, Jesus and that he rose from the dead, all that stuff. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. This is the resurrected Jesus came up, walked among them and said this. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing uh, as you walk along? They stood still with their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas had asked, are you a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus says, right? Like he didn't know, you know? And he asked, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped... We had hoped that he was the one who was gonna redeem Israel. Notice that. We hoped that we were gonna redeem Israel. But what is more is this is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. So that just happened that morning. Didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just like the women had said but they did not see he said to them how foolish are you you are slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken did not christ have to suffer these things and and then enter his glory in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in scripture concerning himself. As they approached the village which they were going, Jesus acted like he was going to go further, uh, but, but, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for the evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to him. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Then he departed from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Wow. Now, when Luke was documenting this event, he was not thinking, I'm writing the Bible. Luke was not thinking, I'm writing the Bible. Because by the time you got your Bible, how you and I, we got our Bible, that's not the way the world got their Bible. By the time you and I got the Bible, it had been wrapped in leather, it had had maps in it, it had been chaptered and verse. it had titles in it, it was in English, right? So it had been mapped and wrapped and your name maybe was put in gold there with gold leaf, right? I mean, th- that's how you got the Bible. But what most people don't understand is this. The Bible isn't a book. The Bible isn't a book. It's actually a collection of 66 different books, documents, letters that have been put together by 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years, thousands of years ago. This is not a book. This is a collection of books, letters, and documents see that? And we forget that. And the reason these events were documented and preserved wasn't because something was written, but because something had happened. John wrote this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. Now, John did not mean this book. When when John references were not recorded in this book, he did not mean this book, because the Bible Hadn't been put together yet. There was no A, the Bible. He was meaning the book of John. This book that we call the book of John, this document that he was writing. And then look what else he says. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, what John is saying is if you don't have any other documents, if you, if you don't have Matthew or Romans or Hosea, if you don't have any other documents and all you have is this one document written by John, if John is all you have, then John is all you need in order to know who Jesus is and to be saved. That's what he's saying. But of course, we don't have just one document. We have 66. And, and, the, and these documents, even from the very beginning, these documents were considered scripture. Scripture. Even, even Peter referenced Paul's letters. Peter referenced Paul's letter. This is super early on as scripture. Look what he says. Second Peter 15. It says, And remember the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. Say amen. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted the letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with the other parts of scripture. And this will result in their, dest- their destruction. And so Peter is also saying, hey, listen, what Paul has written is scripture. He's putting it on the same par as the Old Testament. That's powerful. Right. Right. Now, when we, now, when we go and we, and we fast forward, we get to the end of the first century, and there's still not this thing called the Bible. The end of the first century, there's still not this thing called the Bible. But what there is are there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians, and there are all of these copies of these documents, and some communities might have one book. Maybe they have, you know, the, the book of John, and maybe another community has the book of Matthew. Some communities have parts of some books, and they have this part. Maybe this person has part one, and, and this person has the second half of, of one of Paul's letters, and there's fragments, and 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 there's these things going all around but not yet the Bible. Then in the second and third century comes along Christians that are now facing epic persecution. And, the third and, 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 and in the second and third century, there's a historian named Tertullian who wrote this. He said, if the fiber, if the Tiber floods, uh, if the Tiber floods, sorry, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if it doesn't water the fields, if the sky withholds its rain, if there's famine, if there's a plague, the cry of the city is at once, Christians to the lions. In other words, Christians were blamed for everything and anything that went bad. And this all culminated in about AD 303 when Emperor Diocletian issued an edict that resulted in the worst state-sponsored persecutions that happened up until that time. And in fact, in one of the decrees, and I think we might have his picture up there, but in one of the decrees, um, this is what he says. He says, listen, if you um, were caught with any Christian documents. You needed to bring them in to be burned. And if you refused to do that, then you would die, but not before they killed your spouse and your children in front of you. In front of you. And hundreds and hundreds of Christians risked and lost their lives, watched their kids be killed, not because of the Bible, They didn't have this yet, but because of fragments of the Bible, pieces of the Bible, they had one or two letters wrapped up. This is how precious these things were. You see, they did it not because something was written, but because something had happened, Jesus had risen from the dead. Then political reform came, and by 323, Constantine, he got rid of all the edicts and returned property to the church. And for the first time, biblical scholars were able to come up into the public and open and bring these documents together without fear of persecution. For the first time, they were able to take this extraordinary collection and come together, and the stage was set for the very first Te Biblia, the Bible. Let's pray as we get into this this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord God, that you illuminate our spirits and our minds and our hearts to its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. See, many people today, especially Bay Area people, they'll say things like this. They'll say things, you know, well, the Bible has its good parts, but it also has its bad parts. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think everything in the Bible is true, right? There's legends in there. We don't really know what happened. Much of, much of the Bible is culturally regressive, right? It promotes certain views that are best left behind. And so there's some good things in there, but you kind of need to pick through those and leave the rest. What do we say to that? Well, I'd like to argue to the contrary, right? That you should trust the Bible. You should trust the Bible three ways. Historically, culturally, and most of all, personally. Number one, historically. Can we trust the Bible historically? Listen, um, when we say this, well, I trust the Bible because it's God's word. And somebody says, well, how do you know it's God's word? Well, because the Bible says so. Wait, what? That's circular argumentation. What do you mean? See, this is very important. We don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible, but we believe in the Bible because of Jesus. This is what I mean. How do you know that this is trustworthy? Well, one way to know is because you look at the claims that it makes and you see. If those claims are true, is there evidence that, th- that there's this person named Jesus who lived and died and all? Is there that evidence? And in fact, there is. In fact, there's so much that even uh, atheist scholars cannot deny that reality. One of the biggest atheist scholars out there is Bart Ehrman, and look what he says. He says this, this is not even an issue for scholars, There is no scholar at any college or university in the Western world who doubts that Jesus existed, was crucified on a Roman cross, and whose tomb is empty. I think the evidence is so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's silly to talk about him not existing. Bart Ehrman, atheist scholar. Right? Now, he had to fall into some recourse to explain some of the facts to where, oh, well, even though that's true, this is why I think this, and this is why I think that. And listen, if you're interested in debunking those, text the question in. We'll answer it Wednesday, right? But let me just say this. What you have to do is you have to look at this evidence, and you have to ask the question, what makes most sense of the evidence before us? What it makes the most coherent, ra- rational, logical sense of the evidence that we have and what, that, and what the New Testament claims. And when you do that, you can see that what Jesus said and claimed is who he is. Is who he is. Who is who he is. And there are several, there are several reasons to, to kind of believe this. Uh, number one, check this out. When you say, well, aren't, aren't, isn't there just a bunch of legends in here? No, not, that's actually not fair, and it's not true. The, the, the New Testament accounts of Jesus are written too early to be legends. For example, look at the very, for, very, very beginning of the passage that we're in, in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's written this account of Jesus, and what does he say to his readers? He says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I've checked and written with eyewitnesses eyewitnesses. In other words, Luke is saying, listen, this this is 20 or 30 years after Jesus Christ had died and rose from the dead, but I'm checking with these eyewitnesses and and he's making this public documentation and and all you have to do is go ask them. They're still alive. You can go check this out. Now he could never say that and people would never believe him if that wasn't true. No, No one would believe it. Christianity wouldn't have got off the ground, right? Wouldn't have happened. Paul said the same thing. Paul says, these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. He couldn't have made such a, a, a public proclamation if that wasn't true. Well, yeah, but isn't the Bible written thousands of years ago? I mean, how can it be trusted? It was so long ago. I hear people say this all the time. How can we know anything that happened thousands and thousands of years ago? But, but here's what they failed to understand is that there is a crucial gap and and, and what they're looking at is the wrong space of time. See, what they're looking at is this, the crucial gap is not between the time, the evidence, uh, or the writings of the documents and today, right? So I think I have this up here, guys. Do we have that? Yes, maybe. Be on it. Let's go. There we go. So most people today, what they'll say is this. They'll say, look, The time that that most people focus on is between the present, today, and what was written. But actually, the most crucial gap that you really need to pay attention to is this next one, is actually when it was written and the event that it documents. That's the most important. When it was written and the event that it documents. Because the closer that is, the more reliable these documents can be. Make sense? And so we, what we discover is, is that, is that these events that were documented within one generation of events take place, the eyewitnesses were still alive. And what that means is this, we actually have better and more reliable sources for the life of Jesus than most major figures in antiquity. That's what it means. For example, take Alexander the Great. Our greatest source for Alexander the Great comes from Plutarch 400 years after Alexander's death, 400 years. And yet every Greco-Roman historian will regard those sources as reliable. Wow. We, the writings of Jesus that we have happened 20, 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Wow. If Jesus hadn't been crucified, if he didn't have these resurrection appearances, if the tomb wasn't empty... If all of these claims didn't happen, Christianity would have never got off the ground. They were written too early to be legends. Number two, the documents were too counterproductive in their content to be legends. Right? Here's the theory that they say goes on. Here's the theory. The Bible doesn't give you what actually happened. That's what they say. Instead, what you have here in the Gospels is what the church leaders wanted you to believe happened. And this view of Jesus helps them consolidate their power and build up their movement. That's the theory. Well, if that theory is true, right? If I'm a church leader and I'm living 70, 80 years after this whole thing place, and I want to make sure that I want to kind of twerk what people believe about Jesus so that way I can have power, so that way this group of men can have power, if that's true then why in the world would they ever write some of the things that were written? For instance, why would they ever put the, 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 the scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane telling his father, saying, Father, get me out of this. If there's a way of getting me out of this, do it. What? No one's gonna put the, the, the savior of the world saying that, Right? Or what about this, women? Women were the very first ones to the tomb and they went and told everybody else what had happened. Now, what you have to understand is in that day, the testimony of women meant nothing. In fact, a woman couldn't even testify in court. It was useless in that tradition. And so if you're trying to get people to believe this story, you're never gonna have it on the testimony of women. You'll never have it stand there. You just would not do that unless it was true. Or look at the way that, that it makes all of these heroes look, all these disciples look. These disciples look dumb and foolish. They look arrogant. They look slow of heart. They look like jerks. They look terrible. They look like cowards. If you're going to make this up and build this up and you're like, I'm going to create some of these heroes and they're going to be, you know, what we should look up to. We're never going to. That, that's just not the case. The only reason it's in there and it's documented that way is because it had to happen. You see that? So you can trust it. You can trust it. Well, Pastor Roger, that was the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, actually, because remember, we don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible. We believe in the Bible because of Jesus. What, what, what that means is this, is that Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament 78 times with authority. Yeah. What that means is, is he referenced Old Testament scriptures and he is the one that solidified the Old Testament and affirms its reliability and authority. And because we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Old Testament and we believe in the New Testament. Number two, and how much time culturally. Now this is a big one. Over the years, less people have been concerned historically about the reliability of the Bible and most people today are, are considered more culturally. They're concerned more culturally about it. And they say, well, listen, there's parts of the Bible that are good, but there's also parts that are progressive and primitive and regressive. And, and we can't, we can't really, you know, we can't really listen to it. Well, what do you do with that statement? Now, listen, if you're like, I've never had these kind of conversations with people. What that means is that the only people you're talking to is other Christians. That should be a red flag that you are not out in the world being light and being salt. If you have not had these conversations with other people, then you are not being intentionally relational with other people from other religions and other worldviews, inviting them over, trying to get to know them. Just think about that. So what do we do? Number one, please consider the possibility that it does not teach what you think it teaches. That it does not teach what you think it teaches. Uh, when, When you look at the book of Genesis... And you look at it at first; it can it can be very disheartening, because you look at all these heroes like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They're spiritual heroes, right? But but look how they treat women. It's pretty awful. I mean, right? Have you read the Book of Genesis lately? You know. And, and, and they all engaged in polygamy, you know, which means they had multiple ro- wives. All of them did. And they're all part of this patriarchal institution. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are our heroes. How do we handle that? Well, what's interesting is there's a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative written by Robert Atler, who's a Jewish scholar, and he's a professor that taught at Berkeley University. And he says this. He says, when you look at uh, these institutions especially in Genesis, these were universal uh, sort of ancient cultures, and there were sort of two characteristics. One was polygamy, and one was primogeniture. Polygamy and primogeniture. Pro- primogeniture. Polygamy means have multiple wives. Primogeniture means that the firstborn son always got everything. The firstborn son would get all the money and all the power and all the authority and all the wealth. They got everything, Right? He says, but when you look at the book of Genesis, you'll see two things. First of all, every generation that had polygamy wreaks havoc. And every generation, multiple wives, it was a total disaster, socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, everything. Secondly, when you look at primogeniture, every single generation, God always favors the younger son over the older one. It's always Abel and not Cain, Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, in fact, look what Robert, what Robert Alter says. He says this if you actually realize what Genesis is doing, it is subverting, not supporting, it is overturning those ancient patriarchal institutions at every point. If you don't really read it then, and you don't understand that, then you haven't learned how to read. <laughs> A little arrogant, but okay. Right? But it's true. Number two please consider the possibility that you are misunderstanding what the Bible teaches because of your own cultural blinders. This is so true. When we take our culture, our 21st century culture and impose it on the text, we'll never understand what the text is saying. Never. Let me give you, let me give you a case study that comes up a lot. Uh, and it has to do with this is, well, doesn't the Bible condone slavery and that's wrong. And because that's wrong and it's in the Bible, then there's probably other parts of the Bible is wrong. So I'm going to dismiss the whole Bible because it condones slavery. Does it condone slavery? See, when we look at that word slavery in the Bible, we automatically think of American slavery, this race-based Atlantic trade, uh, trade chattel slavery. That's the, that's the American view of slavery. And that's immediately what you and I think of. And when we do that, when we force that on the text, then that, that, that we're looking through our cultural blinders, and we, quite, and we aren't quite understanding what the Bible's teaching. Right. You know, if you actually go to a whole letter that was written that Paul wrote, speaking to a master and a slave. He talks to both one, uh, one, one simmius, sorry, who is a Christian runaway slave, and Philemon, who is a Christian master. And and, and he talks about what they should do to reconcile this relationship. And what people today say is, well, what he should have done was he should have just did sort of this political revolt. He should have said, listen, we're going to do this thing and we're going to say that slavery should just be outlawed. That's what Paul should have did. And because Paul didn't say that, then he's messed up. But actually, Paul did something even greater than that. Paul did something more surgical and transformative than that. Because here's the reality. Um, You know, when you pass a law that is a just law and it's a right law and it should be passed, what that does is it forces mandated behavior, which is needed. That is a must. But it doesn't transform the heart. It forces the person to comply with the law, which is needed, but it doesn't transform how the person thinks. And Paul is doing just that. Paul's doing this, that when he writes to Philemon, he says, listen, I want you to accept him just as you would accept me. In other words, I want this relationship to go from being a slave to a sibling. Do you see that? He did exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't go straight to the political powers and cause reform. No, he went to the church. He went one heart at a time uh, for transformation, Number three, I'm going to go fast here. You may be getting offended by certain biblical texts because of the assumption that your culture in this moment is more superior. Let me just do a thought experiment with you guys for just a second. If the Bible is really the revelation of God, and therefore it wasn't the product of any one culture, but it came from God, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point in different ways? But at some point, wouldn't it contradict every culture? Therefore, when you're reading it and it begins to make you feel uncomfortable and it begins to make you feel like, I don't know, that that should be a sign that this was not written to your culture or from your culture or by your culture. It was not written from another culture or by another culture, but this is a kingdom culture. You see? Number three, 10 minutes, let's go. Personally. Personally. You can trust the Bible, historically, culturally, but most importantly, personally. See, um, I'd like to make the case that a completely authoritative Bible is the prerequisite to a warm and personal relationship with God. In other words, if you read this and you say, yeah, this is good, but this won't be the highest authority in my life, then there's a problem, there's a problem. Look at verse 32 of our text when the Emmaus disciples looked back over everything, everything they had said, and they summarized it, and they said this, were our hearts not burning within us while he opened the scripture to us? In English, that, that word heart, um, we think of emotion, but actually here, what it really means is almost like uh, your whole body, the, your wholeness, right? Right? It means everything about you. And here's what he's saying. They had a whole life-changing personal encounter with the Lord. They felt a love that they had never experienced before. When did they feel that love? When the scriptures were properly expounded to them. See that? When they understood what this really meant. Wow. Notice how Jesus goes at this. Verse 20 and 21, it's almost comical, but he says this. He says, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We hoped he was the one that was gonna redeem Israel. Wow. See, they were only looking through their culture. They had cultural blinders because they, they were only thinking of the redemption of Israel. They were not thinking of the redemption of the world. But he says, but he died on a cross. He had to die on a cross to save us. You see? And then he goes on, he says, how foolish you are, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying, you, you thought the Bible taught one thing, you thought the scriptures taught one thing, but, but maybe it's not teaching what you thought it was teaching. Maybe you need a revelation for, to be able to help understand what this is. And so Jesus begins to open the Bible to them so they can understand. And then he says this, he says, and the be, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in scripture. Verse 27 is very important because if you do not understand verse 27, if you do not capture verse 27, the Bible will crush you. In fact, many of you, you show up every Sunday, but the reality is in your heart, you're thinking this Christianity thing isn't working. I come every Sunday hoping that someday it will work, but it's not working right now. And it's probably because you don't understand verse 27. Because look what he says. He says, and and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said, and all the scriptures were concerning himself. There it is. In other words, everything in the Bible is about him is about him is about him because if you think it's about you and how what you must do and how you must live and how you have to check off these certain religious things and 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 it's not about what he did or about how he died or about he then, then then you don't need a savior all you need are rules that's all you need are rules but there are two ways to read the bible You can read the Bible as if it's all about you, or you can read the Bible as if it's all about Him. There's two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible as if it's all about you, or you can read the Bible as if it's all about Him. All about you, what you must do in order to get the blessing. Or you can read every part of the Bible as if it's all about Him and what He has done for you. When you read this, is it all about you, or is it all about Him? That's what I'm wondering. When you read this, when you wrestle with what it says, when you, when you meditate on it and think about it, what, is it about you and how it makes you feel? And, or, or is it about him? Is it about him? Can you imagine what must have happened on the road to Emmaus? Can you imagine what had to happen in the disciples' hearts when Jesus said, do you really think the holy God of the universe put your sins away because of those sweet little lambs that you used to slaughter way back in the old Testament? Do you really think that's what happened? Jesus says, I am the lamb of God. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When, when, when he says, let's go look at Moses and look at the Passover and how you had to apply the blood, he goes, I am that lamb. And you know what happens when you realize that? It becomes personal. This religion becomes personal. Because, because now these lambs are personified. Now what you're seeing is there, there isn't a lamb before you with wool. But there is a person before you. Wow. When you begin to connect the dots and see that this is all about him, every part of it is about him. Every part of it is about. When you begin to connect those dots, you guys, you begin to see what he's done. You begin to see how he's victorious. It changes how you face everything in your life. Everything. When you're fighting with your spouse, when you get that call from the doctor that you were regretting, when you're trying to figure out bills and you're trying to figure out how you're gonna make that, when you realize it's about Him and you begin to connect the dots, when you enter into this real world and you have a real Jesus, it makes a difference. But this has to be the ultimate authority for you to understand that. Do you begin to feel your heart burn? Do you have a longing for purpose, for infinite love, for infinite significance and security that nothing in this world can satisfy? Well, yeah, but Pastor Roger, some of this stuff, you know, when I read it, it's, it corrects me, it, it offends me, it, it contradicts me. You you, you know, you know, what's really beautiful about the marriage that I have with Becca is that we argue, is that we argue because what that lets me know is this is a real relationship. She's not a robot and I'm not a robot where we just sort of tell each other. Yep. Whatever you say, honey. Okay. And we never, we, we, we never contradict each other. We never correct each other. We never offend each other because that's a real relationship. Well, what do you do when you have a Bible or a book or a God that you won't ever let correct you or offend you? Then basically, what you're after is a robotic God. What you're worshiping is a fake God, it's a self made God. It's not God, it's just you. It's just you because how could God ever tell you something that you hate? How could God ever tell you something that gets you upset and frustrated at him? He can't if he's just robotic made up and always agrees with you and always tells you what you want to hear. And always, he, that, That's impossible. That's a fake God. That's a fake relationship. You see? Do you want your hearts to burn within you? Do you want the deepest longings of your heart to find their rest in a personal encounter with God? Then go where the scriptures are expounded. Begin to read this. Go to Connects and and see what it is that that these small groups are teaching and helping us understand. Begin to pick this thing up for yourself and read it and reread it and reread it again and reread it again and reread it again and reread it again and again and and two years later and three years later and four years later again and again and again and begin to see what it says about the God that you serve. Wow. Notice it says this, that when Christ broke bread, they recognized him. In just a few minutes, we're about to break bread and have communion. And I just wonder, Who's the God that you're having communion to? Is he fake? Is it just you? Or will you recognize the real God having a real relationship with Jesus Christ? You can trust this Bible, its reliability and its authority, historically, culturally, and personally. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, and Lord, I know that I couldn't cover all questions. And so I thank you that we're gonna have this time on Wednesday to answer any questions that might've come in. But Lord, I do pray that for those who were maybe wondering if everything in this word is true, or maybe those who believe it, but they just couldn't articulate it, God, or, or maybe for some people, this has just been a way of digging their roots even further in you for what they believe in who you are. I thank you, God. Thousands of people have bled and died so we can have this. But most importantly, God, you bled, you died, and you rose again. In Jesus' name.